Uh, our scripture reading today is Matthew chapter 23. Um, this is a, this entire chapter is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees. And I really like in the beginning how right off the bat he says, do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. He realized that they were preaching the gospel, but they weren't acting it out. Um, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their flactories, oh, that's right, broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feasts and they the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven neither be called instructors for you have one instructor the christ the greatest among you shall be your servant Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple it is nothing but if anyone swears by the gold in the temple he is bound by his oath you blind fools for which is greater the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred and you say if anyone swears by the altar it is nothing but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like the whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all unclean, uncleanness. So you are also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, 
saying, If we had lived in these days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakai, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing, and you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thank you. I mean, if anybody needs a guide for this, go ahead and sit down. Does anybody need an outline? I I, I did handouts for outlines this week. If you didn't get one, Mike's got some extras. Everybody got one? All right. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Wayne and Linda, as well. Excellent music this morning. What a way to prepare to worship. Amen. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We'll be beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> when you think of marriage, what do you often think of? You may think of the wonderful blessing of living with your best friend making a home together. Maybe you think of marital intimacy, having children, sharing confidences, and many other things. These, we may say, are the organic aspects of marriage, the flesh of the marriage. Flesh, however, would kind of look strange without bones, right? Just imagine just a pile of skin without bones. Kind of weird looking, right? In our culture, though, this is exactly what many have chosen to do. Live with the flesh of the marriage without the bones of the marriage. And it doesn't work. In fact, it's downright unbiblical. So when it comes to marriage, what are the bones? We might call this the institutional aspect of marriage. These are things that are mentioned but hardly thought about in a wedding ceremony. We gather together in the sight of God and in the face of this company to join this man and this woman. Or maybe, if anyone can show just cause why they may not be lawfully joined. Or maybe with this ring, I thee wed. Or think about, I pronounce you husband and wife. These vows, these institutions form the bones on which the flesh of the marriage hang. Without them, there is no substantial commitment, no substantial covenant to the marriage. 
There is no one or no thing to which the relationship is accountable. These bones we often call the marriage covenant. It is the rule structure that builds a platform for the relationship that separates a man's relationship with his wife from his relationship with all other women and vice versa. And vice versa. People often want the activities of marriage, but not the institution of marriage. In the same way, we find in our culture that people want the activities of the local church, but not the institution of the local church. They want to be in a relationship with the church, but they are unwilling to make the covenant commitment to the local church. In order to understand what all this means, we must first ask the question, what is a local church? What is church membership? After studying scripture, we should come to a conclusion similar to that of Jonathan Lehman. The definition is on the top of your outline there. He says that a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. We'll unpack this later on in the message. But to find the answer to our question, what is a local church? What is church membership? And, uh, and begin to set the stage then for what does meaningful membership look like in the local church, we need to begin with the very first scripture where the church is mentioned. And that's right here in Matthew chapter 16. This is the first time that the church is mentioned, and it's mentioned by Jesus. Beginning in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he answered his disciples. He asked his disciples, excuse me, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we come to this passage that we will have a better and deeper understanding of your church, the church that you established. Lord, I pray for us as a congregation. I pray along with Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, where he prays this for your people. He prays that according to the riches of your glory, that you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being. 
so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And that we may be be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to you who are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to you be glory in this church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In order to understand what Jesus is doing here, we need to get some background into what's going on in the New Testament, especially when Jesus talks about the word kingdom. You may remember from last week, if you, so if you have your notes, the, the blank there is kingdom, background, this word kingdom. Last week, and, and now in our passage, and even in the definition that's on your page there, the word kingdom plays a dominant role. The phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is especially noticeable throughout the Gospels. In fact, Jesus actually uses the word kingdom far more than he uses the word church. He uses the word church twice and the word kingdom 49 times. On the other side of that, the Apostle Paul in his writings mentions the church 43 times and the kingdom only 14 times. So why is this? What's going on? Is there disagreement in Scripture about which is more important? Actually, no. In fact, what we will see is that, is that Jesus' emphasis, it is Jesus' emphasis on the kingdom that establishes the church as an institution. And Paul's emphasis focuses on the organic, the skin, the flesh of the church, what the church does. To understand the kingdom, then, we need to go back to the Old Testament. I'll do this briefly. We won't spend all of our time here. All the way back in Genesis. I know you're all thinking, really? All the way back in Genesis. God promised Abraham that a kingdom would come from him and his son Isaac. His family remained nomadic people for a couple of generations. And then they were enslaved under the rule of of the Egyptian pharaohs for hundreds of years. God then raised up a man named Moses to bring more than a million of Abraham's people out of Egypt and bring them to a land where they would eventually become kingdom. They had borders, they had a king, and they had a set of laws. Things we usually think of when we think of a kingdom. This kingdom was given a unique job, though. Unlike any other kingdom, this kingdom was given the job to represent God on earth. Through the people of Israel, the surrounding nations were supposed to learn about what God is like. As many of you know, Israel failed miserably at this job. Instead of worshiping God, they turned to worship the idols of the nations around them. Instead of following the laws of God, they followed the law of the people around them, essentially to do what is right in their own eyes.
So it would seem that they did not do what they were told to do. And eventually their borders would be broken down and they would be taken into captivity by the very nations that they were called to represent God to. Then along came Jesus. As he taught these same descendants of Abraham, he toppled all their ideas of what a kingdom should be, of what their kingdom should be. He says in Matthew chapter 3 and in Matthew chapter 8 that God is firing Israel as his representatives. In Matthew 3, Matthew 11, and John 14, Jesus said that no longer would they represent God, but he would now represent the Father. In Matthew 4, 5, and 18, he declared that God would establish a kingdom, but not a place like Israel was, but, uh, but as his ruler, rule over a particular set of people. This kingdom was for people who were repentant, people who were poor in spirit, people who were humble like children. As he also taught in Matthew 5, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 3, and Colossians chapter 3, these citizens of this kingdom, who he would purchase with his death on the cross, would join him one day in representing God on earth. This obviously leaves an inherent problem. The kingdom has no geographic borders. So it would be all too easy for just anyone to claim to be a citizen in this kingdom. A problem which Jesus actually predicted in Matthew 7, Matthew 24, and Matthew 25. These imposters would bring the king's name into disrepute. The kingdom was for people who were repentant, poor in spirit, and humble like children. But if literally anyone could claim to be a part of it all on their own, that would be a huge mess. How would Jesus mark off his citizens of this landless, borderless kingdom? Who would exercise border patrol when there are no borders? Step aside for a second. Now imagine that you're in the White House press room. Can you just go up to the microphone and speak on behalf of the president? Unless one of you is currently the secretary of, or the press secretary, the answer is probably no. You cannot just go up to the microphone and speak for the president. Of course not. You have to be authorized to have that kind of authority. The president must authorize you to represent his mind. So let's ask this question in another direction. Have you ever spoken on behalf of Jesus and his kingdom? Has anyone authorized you to represent the king's mind? If Jesus is greater than the president, if Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, representing Jesus is no inconsequential office. It's a big deal. Most likely, most Christians, many of you in this room, probably have never stopped to consider whether it's legitimate for us to claim to speak for Jesus. Ever since the fall, we human beings have felt entitled to do whatever we want. And we carry that sense of entitlement right into our Christianity. 
in Jesus' kingdom, we can only legitimately act where he has given us permission to act. An individual human cannot, uh, an individual human being cannot suddenly decide that he or she belongs to Jesus' kingdom and therefore has the right to stand in front of the entire planet Earth and represent Jesus officially. You never claim that for the president. Why would you claim to do that for the king of presidents? So what does this mean? It's just as presumptuous to assume that you have the authority to represent King Jesus, the divine son, as it is to assume that you have the authority to represent the president of the United States. More so, in fact, someone has to authorize you. So now we have a question. Who can authorize us? Who has the authority for publicly declaring who is a citizen and who is not? Well, for starters, Peter and the apostles, the first members of the church, and that brings us to our passage this morning. Remember again that this is the first of two passages that Jesus mentions the church. If we want to know what a church and its members are, we should start here. We will see the institutional structure of the church, the bones on which the flesh of the church hangs. See on your next point there, the church is built on the declaration of Jesus as Messiah. Where we are here in verse 13, what Jesus has just done, they have just, he has just fed 4,000 people. And this is the second time he's fed large crowds like this. Crowds have been following them around. And then even more than that, right after this, in the beginning of 16, Jesus had just gotten done rebuking the current leaders, that is the Pharisees and Sadducees, who believed that they represented God on earth and told the people not to trust their leadership. So here we are in verse 13. Jesus gets away with his disciples. This is an important moment of quiet reflection away from the crowds. Can you imagine that you've been surrounded by thousands of people for hours, if not days, and now you get a moment to just sit with your leader, to just sit with Jesus. No more crowds, just yourselves. This is an important moment of quiet reflection away from the crowds before Jesus would go to Jerusalem to be crucified. And he asked them a question. It says, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man was Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. This is a hearkening back to, uh, to the book of Daniel. And Daniel refers to this divine character as the Son of Man. Jesus uses that title to refer to himself throughout the Gospels. Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? It's a good question. The disciples would have a pretty good idea, right? They've been hanging out with the people for all this time. They've probably heard some rumors and some things people thought might have been what they believed who Jesus was. And so they answer, some say you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets, right? The people think somebody's been risen from the dead and that's who this guy is, right? Somebody's risen from the dead and that's who this guy is right here. So this is what the crowds think. Jesus then shifts the question. He says, but who do you say that I am? 
Theologian John Baer said this is the most important question in all of Christian history. Who do you say that he is? In fact, all of the early Christian controversies and every controversy for the most part throughout church history has all been centered on this question, who is Jesus? Peter then responds. Speaking on behalf of all of the apostles, Jesus asked all of them, and then Peter, acting as a representative of the apostles, gives this answer. He says, Sue ha Christos ha weos ton theu ton zotas. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. At this time period, the term Messiah, the word for Christ and Son of God were almost certainly synonymous terms. They were terms that were used together. This comes from Psalm chapter 2. In verses 1 and 2, God asks an interesting question. He says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is the word Messiah, the word Christ. They take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, against his Christ, saying, let, them, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So there's an attack from the people in Psalm chapter 2 on the Christ, on the Messiah. Then, was, then God responds here. He who sits in heaven laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This Messiah is not just any Messiah. He is a Messiah who is also king. And not only that, verse 7 God speaks to this Messiah king and he says, I tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This Messiah king is the son of God. So when Peter makes this declaration, he's saying, you are that Messiah king, the one who is the son of God. That's who you are. It's a strong declaration. He's saying you are the son of God, the eternal co-creator, the judge, the great high priest, the image of the father, the very word of God in the flesh. That's who Peter is declaring Jesus to be, to be at this moment. Interestingly, Jesus takes us a step further. He says, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that's Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't get this from flesh and blood. You know where you got this from? But my Father who is in heaven. Peter has spoken in this moment on behalf of God the Father. He has spoken what God the Father has revealed to him. Jesus tells him that he has spoken on behalf of God the Father. The church is built on this very declaration. If we as a people do not declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we are no longer a church. We are not. But not only is this built on this declaration of Christ as our Messiah, but we see next in point three there, the church is built on people. The, ch the church is built on people. 
Verse 18 says, Jesus continuing this, he says, I tell you, you are Peter. The you here is emphatic. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter's name is the masculine form of the Greek word Petra, which means rock. Now the word, the word rock in its masculine form does not show up anywhere else in history except for right here where Jesus gives this to Peter as his name. Peter, or Jesus essentially says, you are rock man, and on this rock I will build my church. Now if you just thought of the thing from Fantastic Four, shame on you. <laughs> I did, so shame on me too. You are rock man, Petros. You are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. You are rock man, and on this rock, I will build my church. Notice he also says nothing about his successors. He doesn't say, Peter, on you and all those who come after you. This is a specific declaration to Peter himself, and probably also to include all the other apostles themselves, since they are uh, included, since Peter is speaking on their behalf. He says here then, that the, I will build, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This phrase, gates of hell, is not necessarily talking about that we're marching into hell and at its gates. This is a, a metaphor to talk about death itself. In other words, what he's saying is that death itself will not stop the church. You can persecute them, you can do anything you want, but they are not going to go away. The church will not be defeated, not even by death itself. So now we come to the word, this, this first time the word church is used in the New Testament, the word ecclesia. It says, on you I will build my church. The word ecclesia is used many times throughout the, the New Testament. Um, 103 of those times it's referring to the church. The word ecclesia means assembly generally, and there's a few times where it's referring to just a gathering of people. But the majority of the time, 103 of the times that the word ecclesia is used, it's translated and should be translated as church. It is the church. It is the, the formal gathering of God's people. 90 of those times, it's referring to the local church, an individual embassy of God's kingdom on this earth. And 13 times, it's referring to the universal church. That is, according to Jonathan Lehman, uh, the universal church or the assembly of all Christians from all ages who will gather at the end of history. Jesus says that he will build this end times assembly. The church is an end times assembly. This is not from this time period. We are a gathering of people that are not from this time period, if you will. We are an end times community. So then we ask this question, where will Christ build his church? He says, on this rock. On this rock. So we ask the question, is this on Peter or the apostles or on the confession of Peter. I would say that it's best to include both. Peter can hardly be separated from his confession. Right? To say that you said something and then that that's dissociated from you would make no sense. 
In fact, we'll see how this all plays itself out. It's, you can't separate the confession from the confessor. Jesus will not just build his kingdom just on words or just on people, but he will build his kingdom on people who believe the right gospel. Jesus will build his church on confessors. The church is built on people. Next we see the church is given the keys. The church is given the keys. Jesus then makes a really interesting statement. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So what are these keys? What is this, what's going on here? First of all, we notice that Jesus says this in the future tense. He says, I will give you the keys. When does this take place? Well, as we'll see, this actually ends up happening where Peter and the apostles receive the keys. It actually does not take place until the book of Acts. So what are these keys? Just to understand, what are these keys? The keys here would represent administrative authority, a stewardship, if you will. If you're Lord of the Rings fans like me, you're the steward of Gondor, right? He's the king in place of the king. He's not the king, but he's holding the throne until the king comes back. So the keys then here represent a stewardship that is given to Peter and the apostles. Jesus gave Peter the authority to do what Jesus did on earth, to act as God's official representative for affirming true gospel confessions and confessors. Now, before you think, well, that's kind of weird. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. Let's see how this plays itself out. Does Peter actually use the keys? Does he really have these keys or not? We see some things that Jesus, when he exercises his authority in affirming gospel confessions and confessors. In John chapter 2, verse 24, it tells us that Jesus did not entrust himself to the crowds. These crowds were listening to him. They were following him. He says, I don't trust them. I'm not telling any more about myself because I don't trust them. Saying their belief in him is false belief and they should not be trusted. In John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47, he does the same thing. People who were claiming to believe in him, he tells them, you are not sons of Abraham, you are sons of your father, the devil. These are people who were claiming to believe Jesus' message. He tells them that they are not sons of God at all. But does Peter ever exercise his authority? In Acts chapter 2 and verse 3, the people ask, Peter, what should we do to be saved? And what does Peter do? This is how. Believe and be baptized and you'll be saved. He tells them how to be a confessor. In Acts chapter 10, it is not Paul, but rather it is Peter who opens the door for the Gentiles. In, the, in Cornelius' house, Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius, a Gentile man, and it is Peter who leads, him to, who leads him to Christ. But then we have to ask this question about binding and loosing. What does this mean, binding and loosing? It says that you, uh, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Bible scholars sometimes talk about binding and loosing as a judicial or a rabbinic activity, which is helpful for understanding this phrase. For instance, a rabbi might decide whether some law applied to or bound a particular person in a certain set of circumstances. 
Jesus essentially gave the apostles this kind of authority. The authority to stand in front of a confessor, to consider his or her confession, to consider his or her life, and to announce an official judgment on heaven's behalf. Is this the right confession? Is this a true confessor? In other words, the apostles had heaven's authority for declaring who on earth is a kingdom citizen and therefore represents heaven. We actually see Peter do this on several occasions. We already saw in Acts 2, 3, and 10 that he does this in sharing the gospel with people. But we also see Peter basically pronounce death on Ananias and Sapphira for their deception in Acts chapter 5. Their lives did not match their confession, and so Peter acted on behalf of heaven. Also in Acts chapter 8, Simon the magician had made a profession of faith under the preaching of Philip. He said, yeah, I believe that stuff, all that things about Jesus you're saying. But then he saw Peter and the apostles giving the Holy Spirit. And he says, I want that ability. I want to do that. Hey, Peter. Can I give you some money and get that from you? Peter sharply rebukes him and condemns him for his actions and calls him to repent. He basically tells him, you need to ask for forgiveness for what you're doing right now or things are not going to be good. Peter acted on behalf of heaven in calling Simon the magician to repentance. So let's not get confused on this. Peter is not making some new decisions for heaven as if heaven must follow his authority. It's not what's going on here. Rather, as R.T. France puts, points out, the, the, the way that the verbs are here, the future perfect tense used in these verses, uh, indicates that when Peter makes his decision, it will be found to have been already made in heaven, making him a faithful steward of God's prior decision. So how does this all apply to us as a church? How does this apply to the church? How does it apply to meaningful membership? To quote Jonathan Lehman again, he says, I'm not saying that Jesus establishes a church membership program in Matthew 16, but he indisputably establishes the church, which is its members, and he gave it the authority of the keys to continue building itself, effectively the authority to receive and dismiss Members, we actually see this in Matthew 18, which we'll deal with in a couple of weeks. The authority of the keys is the authority to assess a person's gospel words and deeds and to render a judgment. Now again, in a few weeks, we'll, we'll see the same language about the church and giving the church the keys. In, in, in Matthew chapter 18, the second and only other time Jesus mentions the church there we will see that Jesus gives the authority of the keys not only to the apostles, but also to the local church. Thus, we will see that the local church is extremely important in God's kingdom. And its practices should not be taken lightly. If we as a local church represent God as an embassy for the kingdom in Gordon, Texas, then ought we not to take our membership seriously? After all, those who we call members are those people who we are affirming as believers who collectively act as God's representatives. To take membership lightly would then be to take God's kingdom lightly. Let's think back to our definition of a local church. 
You see that back at the top of your page there, a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through the gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Notice the five parts of this definition. First, there's a group of Christians. Second, we see that there is a regular gathering. Three, we see that there's a congregation-wide exercise of affirmation and oversight. Number four, we see the purpose of officially representing Christ and his rule, rule on earth. They gather in his name. And five, we see the use of preaching and ordinances for these purposes. Let's break this down just a little bit. Just like a pastor's announcement in a wedding ceremony changes a man and a woman into a married couple, so these later four points in this definition, transform an ordinary group of Christians into a local church. Without those four, we are not a local church, but are merely a social club. In our gathering together, we go public, declaring our highest allegiance. The church is the end times community which finds its ultimate existence in the eternal kingdom of God. The local church gives a public face to our future nation. It's where we bow before our king. Only we call it worship. It's a regular gathering also. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. If you check out the pretty fascinating what's going on in that area there, but chapter, 20, uh, or chapter 10, verse 25 of Hebrews says, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day uh, uh, drawing near. There's a command in scripture to regularly participate in the life of the congregation. Next week, we'll actually walk through baptism and what that is and what's going on, how baptism connects with what a church is doing. But for now, we see that it is through preaching, the ordinances, and through discipline, which again in Matthew 18 we'll discuss after Easter, that our king enacts his rule. The gospel sermon explains the law of our nation. It declares the name of our king and explains the sacrifice he made to become our king. It teaches us his way and confronts us in our disobedience. And it assures us of his imminent return. So what is a local church? What is it? It's the institution that Jesus created and authorized to pronounce the gospel of the kingdom, to affirm gospel professors, to oversee their discipleship, and to expose imposters. We do not join churches as we join clubs. Rather, as we saw last week, we submit to churches as we submit to governments. So what is church membership? Obviously, next question, that's what a local church is. What is a church member? What is church membership? Church membership, your definition there uh, is there, but, but before we get to the definition, it is the declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. It's a passport. It's an announcement made in the press room of Christ's kingdom. It's the declaration that you are an official, licensed, card-carrying, bona fide Jesus representative. Or we can use this definition that you have in your paper here. Church membership is a formal 
relationship between a church and a Christian characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. Notice the elements that are present here. First, there's a church body formally affirms an individual profession of faith and baptism as credible. Secondly, it promises to give oversight to that individual's discipleship. And third, the individual formally submits his or her discipleship to the service and authority of this body and its leaders. The church body effectively says to the individual, we recognize your profession of faith, baptism, and discipleship in Christ as valid. Therefore, we publicly affirm and acknowledge you as belonging to Christ and the oversight and the and acknowledge you and uh, as belonging to Christ and to the oversight of our fellowship. Notice that the church is not declaring whether or not you are saved. The church is not saving you. The church is aff- affirming that profession of faith. The individual then essentially says to the church body, insofar as I recognize you as a faithful gospel-declaring church, I submit my presence and my discipleship to your love and oversight. It's kind of like the I do's of a marriage ceremony. Church membership, in other words, is all about a church taking taking specific responsibility for you and you taking specific responsibility for you. For that church. Notice how this definition explains the difference between my relationship with, say, Mike, a co-member with me of FBC Gordon, and my relationship with my friend Chris, who serves as a youth pastor in Georgia. Mike and I receive the affirmation and oversight of one embassy, while Chris receives those things from another embassy. It's as though each of our passports are authorized in different U.S. embassies in different locations. All this is summarized well, again, by Jonathan Lehman. He summarizes these things about the local church and membership in this way. He says, it's true that a Christian must choose to join a church. But that does not make it a voluntary organization. We are, in fact, obligated to choose a local church, just as we are obligated to choose Christ. Having chosen Christ, the Christian has no choice but to choose a local church to join. So we finish up. Let me ask you some questions. First of all, are you a follower of Jesus? Is he the King of kings and Lord of lords of your life? If that's not the case, none of this matters. Have you submitted to his rule and authority over your life? Is he your true allegiance? Is he your king? Or is there something else that sits on the throne of your heart? Let me ask you a second question. Are you submitting to a local church through church membership? Are you submitting to a local church through church membership? If not, you're living a life of unaccountability. You're living a life removed from accountability with God's people. It's a dangerous place to live. You're living your life without authority to represent Jesus, as Scripture tells us. Finally, let me ask you this. 
do you see the church the way that Jesus sees it? The way that he describes in this passage in Matthew 16. The way that he'll describe the church again in Matthew 18. Do you see the, way, the, the church the way Christ describes it? Or would you rather see the church the way you want it to be? Are you stuck on your own opinions of what you think the church should be? My friend, this is not, I don't come to this from a place of, I've always heard this, I've always thought this, I've never, never been introduced to this before, this is what I've always believed. My friend, I came to this conclusion after long, a long, long process of studying scripture. Long, long, long time. Reading some really good books. Being introduced to 15 years ago, if you would have asked me if I thought this is what church membership was, I would have told you you were nuts. I praise the Lord that he has taught me what his word says. Showed me some things that can even be hard and difficult to grasp. Are you willing to submit to Christ's teaching in the local church? If not, we're only living on our own authority. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity we've had to gather. God, I pray that you would soften my heart to your word, that every day I may submit to your word more and more. I pray this for our congregation as well. May we, may we draw closer and closer to, uh, to the picture that you have drawn of what a church should look like, what a church is. Lord, I pray that we would not take your kingdom lightly, that we would not take loving one another lightly, that we would not take the responsibility that we have been given lightly, but rather, Lord, we would who take it with all the seriousness that you demand. Pray that you would soften our hearts and you would humble us before you. In your name, amen.